This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this, our final conversation in the Seed Change series, we are joined by Vivian Sansor, founder of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, a dynamic living seed library working to refine and reshare and regrow beloved seeds of the ancient and storied Palestinian landscape and cultures. I spoke with Vivian from her home in Palestine a little earlier this year, and throughout our conversation you can hear the busy bustle of Palestinian life going on behind her. We took breaks in our discussion for Friday night fireworks celebrating someone's marriage, for announcements coming from the communal minaret, updates on COVID, and the passing of a citizen due to COVID. Through it all, Vivian's passion and humor and humanity comes through. Enjoy. Good morning to me and good evening to you, Vivian. Thank you for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having Having me and good day to both of us. Describe for listeners, uh, in in an abstract way, what your relationship is with plants and seeds right now. And we'll get deeper into this later in the conversation as well. But describe for people what you do right now. Plants and seeds right now are my healers, my friends, my counselors, my ancestors. My go-to uh, for just grounding myself. Uh, this morning, for example, I spent the morning uh, with two of my friends and colleagues planting all different kinds of seeds. Many of them are seeds of friends of mine. Uh, one collection of seeds is a collection of a friend of mine who passed away. Another is of another friend whose father passed away, and these were his seeds. Uh, and another collection of some friends from New York, some friends from Jersey, some friends from North Carolina, and some friends from California. And so it's a way for me to connect to the people I love everywhere in the world who have become part of my community that I'm severed from uh, due to so many circumstances right now. And so the seeds for me are a way of communicating and a way of kind of getting to know myself better and then honoring the people that I love and making sure that I am still weaved together with the global tapestry of nature lovers. So take us back a little bit. How did you come to be interested in these things? Who were the places and people and plants that grew you into a person for whom these would be callings and um, passions? This is a hard question because a lot comes to mind. But the most prominent thing I would say is that I grew up in a very a rural place, actually. Uh, it is not as rural right now, but it, when I was growing up, it was. And my, my relationship with life in general was always a relationship with nature. So, you know, I... I I lived with the seasons like everybody else in my community. And I remember so much just the sound of me taking a stone and, and breaking the, the almond nuts uh, under our tree. This was my childhood. Just, you know, going and picking some pomegranates from some neighbor and stealing them and then having the juice all up in my face and uh, ruining, you know, my nicest shirt that my mom <laughs> didn't want to wash for, for the 50th time. Me, like, running around after my grandmother. My maternal grandmother was very, um, very, very much into... Uh, growing food. She was an avid gardener. She grew everything under the sun, uh, all kinds of trees. She raised rabbits and I would go barefoot and clean the rabbit poo and uh, the chicken poo. And I I was such a nature girl. Um, But there was a moment that I Apparently, you know, I guess as a teenager, I wanted my freedom. I wanted liberation. And I I bought into the story we're given all the time about, you know, having to go to the city to become something 
quote-unquote civilized or better. And I think that's my critique of education often, that it, it really severs us from our rural communities uh, in the name of development and education. And actually, we miss out on so much education that we could also get from uh, our grandmothers and, and grandfathers and, and mothers. And then I would say a, a, a very prominent person who influenced my life in its entirety is uh, John Sabella. He is um, an agronomist uh, living in North Carolina. He's originally Palestinian. And when I was actually a student in North Carolina, I met him and I started to talk to him about farming and he and I became friends and then he became my thesis advisor. Uh, but since then, more than a decade ago, he's been really my teacher guiding me through so many challenges and opportunities to, to, to figure out how to make agriculture something that actually makes a contribution to my community. And so I have been, in a way, trying to do my best to, to discover that and to, to make John proud also that he invested in some good seeds. Okay, I, we, we clearly need to knit together the timeline and where exactly were you born and raised and then take us from that early childhood and your vivid memories of the, the trees and the fruits and your grandmother and your mother to how we get to North Carolina to how we get back to where you are pulling all of these influences together. Well, I was born in Jerusalem, and I was raised in a little town called Bejala. It's in the Bethlehem district, so it's really Bethlehem. But I went to Catholic school, and, you know, we wore these little uh, dark blue uniform skirts. And I remember I would walk to school, come back from school, and the first thing I did, would my mom would have a warm meal, we'd have lunch, and I would take off my uniform and then I'm like off to wherever the hills take me with my little cousin. And we would just uh, explore. I mean, we were little explorers, climb the terraces, break our legs, whatever happened to us. Uh, but we learned that way. I mean, one of the like, little stories, I remember me and my cousin like running into this dog that was guarding some pigs and somebody who was uh, grow, uh, keeping pigs and we were just running, running and running down and rolling down the terraces. I mean, and then my grandmother just decided that to, to save us from the shock of fear, we needed to take big tablespoons of olive oil. And, you know, as a kid, I mean, if you've tried to take a tablespoon of olive oil, a big one, to drink it, that's already like nauseating. And but as a kid, it was like much worse. But that was her wisdom of how to calm our fear down. Or my childhood did not involve um, a lot of fancy stuff, but it was so rich and fantastic in that way. Uh, and my mother was a huge influencer in my life. I really watched her. She was ahead of her times. You know, in the 80s, for example, you know, this was the heights of. Uh, industrialized food, but she was so committed to whole food and she would just get carrots and squeeze them and make us drink juices and uh, everything she made from scratch was natural. And kids would take to school, you know, like chocolate spread sandwich. I was not allowed to have that. And I was very upset as a child about that. But uh, I now, of course, thank my mother so much for it. And my clock was sunset. I knew that by, by sunset, I had to be home to take a bath and go to sleep and go to school again. And so how do you get from that life to the next life in the U.S.? In the late 80s, uh, there were lots of things going on here. Uh, there was an uprising. Uh, there was also a lot of uh, curfews. Uh, my father's work was being impacted greatly. And then uh, he, he, my father made 
uh, socks. And so he was quite an um, artisan, you know, job socks, not mass production. So political reality combined with the fact that um, the Chinese market opened up uh, in 89, 90s, and uh, he just was losing money like crazy because he couldn't afford to compete. Basically, a lot of things pushed us to immigrate. We immigrated to the United States, to North Carolina, which is where my aunts live. A lot of me as a child felt uprooted uh, and uprooted so suddenly and so quickly from, from, from my playground, which is my, my little hills and my apple trees and my apricot trees. And I felt so angry with my family. You know, why would we have to leave? I think I lived the rest of my life wanting to reconnect to that, wanting to somehow touch it again and feel it again. And I think that definitely like planted the first seed in me was this pain, this separation. And I, and I can say my love for plants and, and gardening uh, comes from more pain than joy. If I'm being honest, there's a lot of pain that led me to this. I don't know who I would have been if I didn't have so much trials, I guess, in terms of being from a place that is so wounded and, and having to kind of make a life somehow um, and make sense of it. So plants, to go back to your earlier question, helped me make sense of life. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Vivian Sansor, founder of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, a dynamic, living, local, and global seed network and life. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Please know that in this week, as we enter this season of thanks heading to the winter solstice, I am deeply thankful for my garden, for you all out there with me as gardener citizens, and for the many opportunities we have right now and always to reseed our world with our words, our actions, our daily choices. We're back now to our conversation with Vivian Sansor of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. When we left off, 10-year-old Vivian and her family had just emigrated to a North Carolina beach town, a place she admits that were she to go now, she would love and be at the beach every day. But at the time, she was just a scared, very dark-haired girl asked to acclimate to middle school in middle America. She was unfamiliar with the culture, and it was unfamiliar with her. She was asked if being an Arab, did she have a tail? It was, she says, a cruel experience. Elevated somewhat by a beautiful woman named Miss Ruth, who took Vivian under her wing, taught her English. Vivian doesn't know where Miss Ruth is today, but she is always grateful for her presence at that time in Vivian's life. As we come back, Vivian explores with us the lessons that seeds and plants offer us in terms of comfort and discomfort, certainty and uncertainty, and the ever-important capacity for transformation. What we know from plants and from seeds is that there is no such thing as, as always joy or always or always woundedness or always pain. There's just such a cycle and it's inevitable. And it's what what makes us understand that, okay, we are in shit right now. I'm feeling horrible right now. Or, and it's inevitable that something will transform. So for me, the concept of death became something I'm very comfortable with. Not that I am not, of course, deeply impacted when when I lose someone or, or when I experience that or when I fear it for myself, but I'm so confident that I'll just transform. I like adventure. And so it, it feels to me like any transformation is an adventure. 
when I went to college in North Carolina, it was truly an adventure and I wanted to live it fully. I was thirsty. I was a very thirsty a teenager who wanted to experience everything. But I also understand that there is a lot of benefit that comes from staying in one place and having that consistency. Uh, and so I'm experiencing it now and it's uncomfortable because it's something I'm not used to. And so coming from where I come from and then going to somewhere so stable like North Carolina uh, at that time, especially, I was very uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable with this sense of um, peacefulness and consistency. It was like, what, what do you mean? Like people wanted to know what you're doing on Monday. And I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen by Monday. Like this is something way far in the future, you know, because even as a kid here, we would, have exams and then the army may declare a curfew and then the exam is canceled. So for me, the idea that something was for sure, like people would say, no, tell me for sure. I'm, I don't know anything for sure. But I think I later learned arrogance through uh, institutional education. I think it does teach you this arrogance that you are always in control. And I think if you are a true gardener, you understand you are, of course, a creator, a designer, whatever, but you are not in control. And the key to, to, to gardening, the key to really gaining the full benefit of what seeds and plants give us is the surrender, to surrender and to humble ourselves, to say, you know, I'm going to put this in the ground. I don't know when or what <laughs> will happen but I'm going to trust. And that's really the, the biggest exercise that continues to call us every time, every time, every time. And now in the world with everything that is happening, obviously there's no more intense moment to really revisit these concepts of, wow, we really thought we were in control. And nature does teach us that. And I love what, we say in Palestine, every time we plant something, we say, may we eat and be able to feed others. And when you ask people, well, what do you think the yield's going to be this year? People will always say, it's up to God and it depends on our service, our service to the plant, our service to the soil. Yeah, these are the, the greatest gifts of the garden for, for me as well. In North Carolina, what did you start out studying? I actually started out wanting to study theater arts. And then I ended up um, taking a lot of political science classes. And I think it's because I wanted to understand my reality more <laughs> uh, and the systems that produced my reality. And I found myself having a lot more political science classes than I did theater arts. So I ended up uh, studying political science and minoring in theater arts. And then I did um, a master's in anthropology. And then during this time when I was doing my master's, I ended up meeting John Sabella, who I mentioned, who became my dear friend and mentor. I always went back and forth to Palestine, but I, I wanted to go and um, do my field work in Palestine. And it was during the, the second uprising, the second intifada in Palestine. It was the end of it. And I really wanted to go. And even people in my department were like, oh, this is dangerous. And I remember like how awful it was that someone says to you, you're going home. And they say, that's dangerous. And like how people also build ideas and, and just feel like it's okay because I come from the Middle East to say things like that to me. Like, this is my home. And so I went home despite uh, everything. And when I got, when I arrived, the first thing that happened was the taxi driver drops me at the edge of Bethlehem where there was like a mound of barriers and, and, and blockades that the Israeli army had put up to close off the city. And 
he's like, here, uh, I can't go any further. So it was very shocking. I had to visit my hometown after five years of not being home and seeing all this destruction and walking with my little suitcase across mounds of concrete and climbing up and down, and which, was, which is a typical Palestinian reality. It's just that I had been living in the U.S. for too long and I was too comfortable. But, uh, but I was so shocked. I was so shocked by also all the things that I missed, all the, all the flavors that I was sharing with you earlier about uh, were no longer as accessible. They were just not there anymore. Um, a lot of the food we were eating were mass production food. Uh, the ladies that came who sold vegetables and fresh fruits uh, that they carried on their heads in baskets and came to your front door just were not many anymore because they were severed from this, the the. the urban areas to come and their villages were severed from the other towns. So it was really, really shocking to me. And so when I went back to North Carolina to finish my master's, that's when I met John and I said, I have to do something, you know? Uh, and he said, why don't you go to Uruguay and learn about what I've been doing down there, you know, we, we are working with people how to produce in small spaces. Um, and so being crazy as I am, I just put my thesis and everything on hold, took out a credit card and flew to Uruguay. But during that time, I was in communication with a young man uh, in Los Angeles who worked with the South Central Farmers. And the South Central Farm was a huge farm in uh, Los Angeles, where a lot of immigrants uh, were growing a lot of their foods and it was being destroyed by a developer. And uh, he wrote me and, I, and he said, well, on your way back from Uruguay, do you want to come to California? Vivian does go to California. And after a few changes in plan, including not returning to and starting a farm in Palestine right then, which she can see now she was not quite ready for, she ultimately ends up continuing her education through work experience. I finally worked with an organization that was trying to promote Palestinian culture and, you know, just change the way media presents Palestinian culture. And so they asked me to work on olive oil. And so from there, I started to try to get to write stories of olive oil producers in Palestine and to pitch it to media outlets. And I met the founder of the company who was doing fair trade olive oil and he's like, why don't you come to Palestine and, and, and write these stories here and live here? I left California in 2010, but, but it's still uh, also my place of residence as well as uh, Palestine. And uh, so, yeah, a decade ago, I returned and I became this nomad who lives in a lot of places and nowhere. But the two main places I consider home are here in Bethlehem and Los Angeles. It's so rich. And the story of the olive oil and the spoonful by your grandmother to soothe you as a child, then kind of coming full circle to writing about olive oil that got you back home on the land there. Like, there's something beautiful about that. So how do we get to the founding of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. My return to Palestine was magical because it was fated. I understand today that I was being uh, guided to do something, even if I didn't understand it then, because leaving... California was not easy for me. I love California so much and I have a huge community there that I also adore. And I felt that I was crazy. I was moving back to not even my hometown, to a town that I'd never been to before in the North. I don't know anyone there. And um, 
I was also very used to my American life. And for me, I was also afraid, like, what will it mean for me to come back and, and, and live and, and adhere to a lot of social norms that maybe I kind of left behind? Uh, but I then decided that I was going to do it because I, I, there was something that was just, I couldn't live if I didn't. So I did. And uh, as soon as I arrived, there, it was a stormy day when I arrived, actually. It was February in the middle of the winter. And there was a huge winter storm. And the like winds, like, like very traumatic, like a scene from a movie. And the taxi comes to pick me up, to take me to Janine, the, the city where I was supposed to start my work. And it was so... Uh, dramatic like I said it was a two hour uh, journey in the car and when I arrived the sun started to shine and as soon as I uh, got out of the car Nasser who had uh, hired me to come and, and, and do these stories for his business takes my hand and takes me to the back of um, the olive oil factory and we start picking wild asparagus He, we just like eating wild asparagus and then he starts a fire, puts the tea kettle and we start chatting and he's like prepping me and then people start to come to welcome me and this new kid in town, right? And it was so uh, magical because here I was terrified and then I have this incredible earthy welcome by these wild plants and I actually didn't even know we had wild asparagus in Palestine. That was my first thing. like, wow, I'm getting to know myself already. And so I, I started to uh, visit uh, different villages, uh, go eat with farmers, um, get to know farmers. I started to go help farmers uh, in the field sometimes just to kind of get to know them. And I allowed myself to just uh, challenge myself and, and be as authentic as I can with the highest level of respect that I can give others by offering exactly who I am. I was trying to be as authentic as, as, I, as I can be, and that was my commitment to myself. And I also wanted to be also this, this woman that I worked hard to become, too, and not let any other constraints change me. And that was, for me, one of the greatest um, pleasures that I got out of this experience. But what I really got out of this experience was that I was being rewoven into my own community, like one thread at a time, one visit at a time, one cup of tea at a time, one cake at a time, one one old grandmother hug at a time. And it was like I was being given injections of love. And I got to experience what it was like when I was a child to live in community. You know, I would come home sometimes. I remember one day I, I, was, I was sick and I went home. And I was just new in Janine. And I usually walk home. And, but that day I took a taxi. So my neighbor, like, I was crying. I was sobbing in my little apartment by myself, thinking, oh, my God, I'm feeling so sick. Who's going to take care of me? I'm new here. I don't know anybody. And then this woman, my neighbor, she knocks on the door and she's like, I saw you came home with a taxi. You must not be feeling well. And she had this bowl of potato soup. And I was like, thank you. Yes. I mean, I am not feeling well. And also to learn to receive, because that was something that a lot of times in the U.S. we are also taught that you're not supposed to need anybody. You're supposed to be so autonomous. And um, also as an immigrant in the U.S. and as a person of color in the U.S., I always felt that I had to, to protect myself and to not ask for anything and to, to do everything by myself. Uh, and that it was a weakness if I needed something or I went to ask. And, and there I was in the, in like back in the womb of people who experienced a lot of loss, a lot of, I mean, I came to Janine after Janine had experienced a massacre. And yet these people were taking care of me. They were loving me. And so in this journey of getting to know people and 
to, to, to be part of their lives and for them to become part of my life. I also learned about, of course, the political realities that challenge farmers here. And one of the main things that I heard a lot about while working with farmers was seed. And one of the major crops they always talked about was this watermelon. It was a giant watermelon. Uh, they didn't even refer to it as a watermelon. They would refer to it by its name, which is Jadu'i. And there are actually people whose last names is Jadu'i. And whenever I would ask, well, where is this watermelon? They would say, oh, well, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, we don't grow it anymore. We don't have it anymore. All kinds of things. And I mean, there were women who would say, I gave birth in the watermelon field because we were working all the time. There was so much watermelon. People would talk about this watermelon as this amazing watermelon that they shipped uh, all the way to Istanbul and Damascus and Beirut. And then when you ask them, well, what about it? And again, they say, you're asking about the dinosaur. And so I was really like moved by this in a very bad way. Like, how can I accept that you're telling me that a big part of who I am and my culture has disappeared? And so I started to understand the value of these seeds, not just as seeds or commodities or something you just put in the ground. Uh, they are actually carriers of stories. And I am a sucker for stories. So I, I started to follow the thread of this watermelon story. And then from there, um, you know, the story continues. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Vivian Sansor, founder of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, a dynamic, living, local, and global seed network and life. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week... This conversation with Vivian, which certainly recalls the powerful and precise cultural seed work of Ira Wallace and of Rowan White, among others, brings up some of the variations in approach in our larger seed world. Seed banks store seed away as insurance of sorts for later use, while the more dynamic and perhaps living seed libraries and seed savers and sharers are clear in the importance of seed remaining in the evolutionary cyclical process of being grown out on the land, in the weather, and by the caring hands of people so that the seed continues to carry this knowledge of the past while still adapting to the present conditions in order to ensure a future. Like the pine and oak and alders here where I am right now, extravagantly offering out their seeds to the world, there is wisdom, generosity, and strategy in abundance and redundancy. Something to think about. In a later exchange, Vivian noted to me that one of the best ways to support her work is to sow and grow and save and share seeds yourself, to become a person in relationship with the seeds and cycles and nature of yourself and your place. We're back now to our conversation with Vivian Sansor of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. As we come back, Vivian takes us on the journey of finding and meeting this heritage watermelon, of finding and meeting a believed-to-be extinct fragrant cucumber. All of this leads Vivian to understand not only the integral importance of seed to culture, but of the parallels between how we talk about our cultural plant relationships and how we think about ourselves and care for one another. A lot of people in the beginning not tell this story as something important because, you know, this is what colonization and, and years of uh, 
of oppression does to you. It, it is not about the destruction of your house or the destruction of your farm, although obviously these things are horrible. It's the destruction of your spirit and the way you view yourself. So we were taught that, oh, we should look at, up to our colonizers, our oppressors. Look at them. They're so powerful, so they must be smarter and better. So what they bring us must be better. And so the process of excavating these stories was really a process of truly looking deeply first into my own self and how I bought into the story too, that I was that I come from and that nothing we have is of value. So I came to understand that this watermelon wasn't just another watermelon. First, it carried many stories, but beyond stories, it carried a lot of actual knowledge that was very important in the world of food production. So this watermelon is part of a collection of seeds that is called bail seeds that my ancestors developed uh, to tolerate thirst and to tolerate heat. And so we grow these bile seeds with zero irrigation. We put them in the ground on a certain day and then we uh, wait for them patiently and faithfully <laughs> to produce for us using zero irrigation. So in reality, I understood that in fact, my, my grandparents and great-grandparents and 10,000 years ago of my grand-grand-grandparents offered us and the world a knowledge and a seed heritage that did, did not require violence towards the earth. They really worked with the microclimate to give us zucchini, tomato, okra, all kinds of uh, summer crops that you put in the ground in the spring and then poof, like magic, you have all kinds of uh, okra. I mean, okra, like when you think, insane. Like when I saw that, I was like, I know this is basic for me now, but at that time when I was discovering this, I was like zero irrigation and it lives off of the moisture retained in the soil after the rainy season and and. It lives off of also the dew. And there was so much attention to soil and how you, you prepare soil, how you attend to soil, and, and how soil is so precious. And so I came to understand that what in today's world in the West was this kind of marketing of, you know, the return to the renaissance of organic was something so basic for most people in my community. So when I understood that even the name for this kind of seed, bail, which refers to the Canaanite deity of fertility, I'm talking Canaanite times, thousands of years ago, I was like, this, I can't be this story can't be true that we have nothing to offer the world. And so for me, the journey of starting to look for seeds and other seeds and uh, other stories was really a, a, a very personal journey of trying to tell myself a new story about myself and where I come from and who I am. So from being asked, oh, you're Arab, do you have a tale? to understanding, oh, I am Arab, all right, and I am Palestinian, and I have these amazing watermelons. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a really, like, amazing circle for me to, to, to embark on this journey. And as I delved more into it and allowed myself to really get naked with it, because it's not easy. It is a very rigorous experience to every time you find a new seed. There's also a story, a lot of times, the way the seed was lost is a very painful story. Mm. So you're going through not only recovering your spirit and your soul, but you're also going through recovering from grieving, grieving the process of grieving, grieving the loss of something. Or, or a lot of times, a lot of the seeds that I would be looking for were seeds that were brought by people who were made refugees in 48, uh, people who walked like hours and hours in heat 
and came to live in refugee camps and, and brought seeds with them in the refugee camp. And that's how certain seeds, for example, were brought to certain places and how they were saved. So when you think of like, wow, my great grandmother, I know my literally my great grandmother walked from a, another village to this village with her son, my grandfather, uh, during the war. So these people were not stupid people. They were resilient people. And they also had a very painful and beautiful past. So what is my role now that I am the woman of today with the capacities of today? What is my role? How can I honor their story by sharing it within my community, by, by telling a new story and, and telling the old story in a new way also? And giving it a contemporary twist that is relevant to new generations so that it's kept alive, so it co-evolves with the world, and so that it, it offers something very precious also to the world. So yes, the world is a very wounded place, but, you know, I found in the sea the possibility to keep, you know, expanding the little oasises that maybe future generations can, can, when they come to start something, maybe they find something to start with. So they don't come and start from scratch. I didn't start from scratch because there were grandmothers in Jenin who brought their old uh, tin chocolate, empty chocolate boxes that now became uh, little seed libraries and shared their seeds with me. That's where they kept it, underneath the bed in an old chocolate box or on top of the refrigerator. I mean, that's where like human heritage lives. So this is how basically like I just started doing this more and more. And the more I collected seeds, the more stories I told, the more people wanted to hear more, the more people wanted to grow more. And I would go to farmers and I would give them seeds and some and then farmers in their 80s sometimes would come to me saying, oh, we heard you found the white cucumber. Can I have some seeds? My wife and I used to grow this. And there was such a romance with each seed that, that we were working on. And now we work with a huge community and a global community and, and everybody. And now you're talking to me from yeah. across the globe and we understand each other, not because of having the capacity to speak English. We understand each other because we are speaking the same language of, of a vision. We share a vision of what, and what and how we want to see the world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so how many seeds do you have? What, what are your future goals? There's just so much in there, Vivian. What, what we have in our collection is constantly changing, uh, but it's always increasing, which is good. Uh, but like things come in and out. Sometimes I run out of things. Sometimes I have more of something that I don't. There are certain things that I always keep because I don't want to not have access to at all. So I keep them somewhere safe. Like there are four or five varieties for sure. They're always there. But uh, I don't know. We probably have, I don't know, over 50 varieties that, you know, get circulated. And um Sometimes, like what certain years, I've focused on specific varieties of wheat, for example, of cucumber, of tomato, uh, and obviously the watermelon. So those are obviously uh, crops that I I go to field. I talk to farmers about. But like you said, the the seed library is not just about the seeds. It's also about the stories that are coming out of this. So. It's really important for me like that people understand that I don't run a seed bank. I don't have a seed bank. This is a very humble operation in the sense that it is run entirely by uh, our community of farmers in the sense they, they you know, I have my... Uh, my visions of like when I fall in love with a crop and I keep at it and I keep finding it. But in the end, I'm not the diligent farmer. I'm, I'm a pollinator who takes the seed, gives it to Muhammad. And then I ask Muhammad to give it to 
Fatme and then uh, I go to another farmer somewhere else and I give it. So I disperse seeds, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I love the process of not knowing uh, where where it will end. So, no, there are no records. It's not an institution. I have very basic uh, notes in a lot in my head uh, and, and notebooks. I have a million notebooks every year and every month, and they're all... So the information is there somewhere. Uh, but I love it because I love the fact that people come in, they're like, oh, do you have... Um, Yaktin seeds, uh, it's a kind of gourd that we love here so much. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I do. And I just open the jar, I give the person, I don't even ask them their name, I don't care where they, sometimes I'm curious where they live and, and what environment they're going to grow it in and maybe like talk about growing environment. But I don't ask people to register right. to take it. I, they just take it. And then a lot of people, by their own free will, uh, <laughs> they return seeds to me. So I don't require it. I ask for it. I, I get emails sometimes from people in Australia who came to the village and took some seed because their grandmother's from this village and, and they want to thank me because they are growing the eggplant in Australia. I don't even, you know. So it's, it's but it's amazing. I love it and I don't need to know the, the destiny of um Every seed, I love that. I love because freedom for me is just something so core. Um, but the seed library itself, aside from our work in the field, has taken on also different shapes and, and, and the translation of these stories and this process uh, has also taken me into the art world a lot. So I, for example, did a... Um, an exhibition at the Chicago Architecture Biennial in Chicago last year, which ran for six months at the Chicago Cultural Center. And that was incredible because uh, I was able to do an installation of a seed library where I talked a little bit about the, you know, how landscape is transformed through colonization and violence and the, how the, the, the flora it, in the prairies was changed and, and, and how people were severed from their food source, just the way our marriage, our valleys here have been changed like that. And how we lost the watermelon, the way Native Americans lost so much of their uh, bioheritage. And so that was one, one project that kind of like, for me was such a, such an amazing thing to do to understand that we're not alone. You know, we are part of a, a global, a global experience, like Native Americans offered the world something. Uh, the Mayans gave us corn. I mean, this is beyond my little Palestine. And to also know that my Palestine also offered wheat and barley. People drink beer because of some genius person, you know, thousands of years ago who decided, let's try this. So the seed library now really swims in several worlds, One, but they all kind of come together. One is obviously the library itself and, and the seeds that live in the fields of farmers. And there are numerous farmers across the country and now across the world. And uh, we have a center in the village of Batir where people come to visit, uh, they eat. Um, I started to do a lot of cooking. And then something else sprouted out of that, which is the traveling kitchen. An extension of, of the work of the seed library because I understood that it wasn't enough just to grow these seed varieties. Because farmers were telling me, you know, Vivian, it's great. We love these varieties too, but but we really can't keep growing them, you know, nobody wants to buy them. And so I started to think of, of like how to engage people, not by lecturing them, but by maybe inviting them in, a, in an experience that will allow them to fall in love the way I fell in love with these seed varieties and these foods. And so I uh, collaborated with an amazing artist here. His name is Ayad Arafe. He designed this beautiful kitchen that comes apart and fits in my car. And so I traveled to places and I set it up and it's very spontaneous and people come and we have conversations and elders are engaged, young people are engaged. So it's intergenerational. It's an opportunity to eat together. 
to eat our history, to, to practice it and to learn more about it. And it's always a place where we learn something new. Everybody learns something new. And it's a place to celebrate and enjoy. I'm going to ask you to tell us one more story uh, that I think kind of works into uh, both the idea of this as the seed itself, the history it holds, the food it helps to produce, and the stories and culture that are embodied there and feed us going forward before we, we finish up. Can you tell people the story of the dark one? Oh, you mean the dark and handsome one, <laughs> Abu Samra. So Abu Samra is a wheat, an ancient wheat. And Abu Samra in Arabic means the one, the father of the dark one, but it really is a way, a slang way to say handsome, dark and handsome. And whenever I um, first met this guy, uh, I fell madly in love immediately. I mean, he was he, we refer to him as he here. Uh, he is very dark and handsome, has uh, a black mustache, and uh, he is very delicious. So people talk about him all the time uh, as this long-lost love. And so I became really fascinated uh, by this nice-looking wheat, uh, but also, again, by the, by the way people talked about it. And so I have been working with... Um, farmers to grow it again uh, and to, to bring it back to the field uh, so that we can make frike with it again. Frike is, a, is basically what we use the way um, other cultures use rice. Well, we use a lot of rice now, but rice is a relatively new introduction in, in history, in the, the history of our cuisine, because we never grew rice here. We still don't grow rice here. We grew wheat and we grew hundreds and hundreds of varieties of wheat. And today we only grow two varieties. And so bringing the dark and handsome back to the field was very important to me on several levels. One is I was in love. <laughs> and uh, two is the fact that, um, you know, when I came to understand that, that Palestine is part of the center of diversity for wheat and barley, I, I really became disturbed by the fact that we are no longer producing and cultivating uh, these varieties that we gave to the world eventually. And so the dark and handsome Abu Samra is uh, one of these ancient varieties. Uh, it grows with zero irrigation. It tolerates so much thirst. And so it has a very nutty, nice taste to it also. And the wheat... Um, is so delicious that when we, uh, we, so the way we make frike, which is what we use as rice, uh, is we take the, the green wheat, uh, obviously when it's green, it's green wheat, uh, and we put it in a fire. And so you end up roasting it and then you crack it and then you steam it the way you steam rice. Mm. And then you eat it with whatever you cook. And it's really delicious and nutty. And, and so, um, I wanted to taste it. I wanted to taste the dark and handsome one uh, because a lot of the ladies would talk about it as the, <laughs> the best flower, the best frike, the best, the best, the best. And so I'm like, I got to have a little bit of that best. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so I did. And it I was so worried that I'd be disappointed because, you know, sometimes the story is so big in your head. But then the first year we baked bread with it, I really came to understand why people referred to its bread as cake or more delicious than cake. And you really feel nourished. You know how sometimes you eat, you know, commercial bread and, it's, and you feel heavy? Yes. It, this one is different. You eat it and if you're energized, you really feel like you, your body has been nourished. Uh, and so I'm really excited this year. We have more people growing it um, and we are now eating it and we have a lot of it. And I'm just so thrilled uh, about that. Before we sign off, is there anything else you would like to add about the, the, 
the power and meaning of this, especially in, in these times? Well, it means a lot to me to be talking to you right now. Um, these are very, very trying times, but they are also opportune times. And they are times that call us again to question really how mediocre or how daring we want to be in the world. And we have a choice. And I'm really, really uh, hoping that we will come out of this braver as a human community <laughs> and more honest and that, um, you know, we will able to support each other, whether through feeding each other or f holding each other, because we're all mourning, we're all grieving, we're all going through this labor and it's a really intense labor. And I'm just really hoping that, um, what will come next is going to be something that's a bit more tender than the world we have engaged in and participated in sustaining in the name of uh, stability or whatever mediocre idea we had about life. So I'm very excited about the world and I'm also very heartbroken about the world and I really hope that these seed stories and, and these plant stories and these conversations that we're able to have uh, on the phone now will be possible in person and that we can, you know, reweave our own selves as, as a human community together in a much better, warmer um, tapestry. Thank you very much for, for being with us today. It's been a real honor and, and an adventure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Vivian Sansour spends her time between her homes in Palestine and California. She is the founder and germinating force behind the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, a dynamic living seed library working to refine and reshare and regrow beloved seeds of the ancient and storied Palestinian landscape and its cultures. On this week, of the complicated holiday of Thanksgiving here in the U.S., I offer out the hope of Vivian's work and the hope of seeds to bind us more closely to one another and to the land that we live on, to own up to our collective pasts honestly and kindly, and live into our collective futures generously and tenderly reconnecting people and places. To, as Vivian's Palestinian prayer offers out, may we eat and be able to feed others. It's up to God and it depends on our service, our service to the plants and our service to the soil. You can follow Vivian's work at viviansansor.com, also on Instagram and on Facebook under the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library pages and the Alber Arts and Seed page. At these sites, you can learn more about her work, where to source some of the seeds, and you can support Vivian's work, including the goal of creating a fruit and flower farm. Join us again next week when we kick off December with a flourish in conversation with Teresa Sabankaya of the Santa Cruz-based Bonnie Dune Flower Company and author of The Posy Book, Garden-Inspired Bouquets That Tell a Story, just in time for seasonal winter festivities here in the Northern Hemisphere. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listener-supported through CultivatingPlace.com. For an extended version of this week's program and Vivian telling the story of rediscovering an heirloom wheat of Palestine known as the Dark and Handsome One, and to see photos of Vivian at work in the field and in community at her traveling kitchen, head over to CultivatingPlace.com and follow the links under the podcast tab. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get my weekly bonus notes and you never miss an episode. Seeds are powerful magic. Plant good ones. 
Podcasts are also powerful magic. Listen to, share, support, and be thankful for your favorite ones. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy and be thankful for the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.